All right, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18 this morning. 1 Kings chapter 18. Every time I get up here, I think that the, uh, the passage we're studying is the most important one in the Bible because I've been sitting in it and I'm ready to teach it and I got fire in my bones ready to, uh, to let it go. But this one is about as good as you're going to get. It's about as straightforward a passage as you're going to find. Uh, and it's just kind of sitting there on a tee waiting for us to, uh, to knock it out of the park. And if you know anything about Elijah, that's what this series is. It's going through First and Second Kings called Prophets and Kings, God's presence in the peaks and the valleys. This is the peaks. This is the, the, the top of the mountaintop. Uh, and if you know anything about Elijah and his story, it's a decent chance that this is the story that you know. If you know anything about the Old Testament, there's a decent chance that this is the one story that you would know. We already know the context. Elijah has gone to Ahab and kind of drew a line in the sand. This is what I talked about just a few minutes ago, kind of drew the battle lines and says, this is not going to go any further, Ahab. You're not going to keep putting out these false gods. You're not going to keep putting out uh, these Asherahs and all these other things. You and Jezebel are done doing this. It's not going to happen. There's going to be, uh, there's going to be a drought for three, uh, for, well, actually he doesn't tell him how. He says there's going to be a drought. Right? So he says there's going to be a drought and says, this is it, enough is enough. And my encouragement to you at that time was that you needed to draw some, uh, some battle lines in your own heart. Uh, and that maybe there were some things that had gone too long unchecked. And it was time for you to say no more in your own uh, heart. That's part of what the season of Lent is about. For you to say no more, not going to do this anymore. I hope you guys have done that in the last week or two. Or that you are going to be doing that as we head towards Easter. But if you have done that, or if you're going to do that, I think what you're going to find, as Elijah finds out today, if you declare war on your sin, don't be surprised if your sin says, all right, let's go, and, and says, let's do it. If this is what you want to do, let's throw down and let's see who, uh, who wins. So that's the context of what happens here. Elijah heads out to the wilderness. He lives there for a little over three years, not far from where Jezebel and Ahab are, but he's able to stay hidden. Uh, they never manage to find him until God comes to Elijah and says, okay, it's time to go back to Ahab. This is the beginning of chapter 18, the very start of chapter 18. Uh, you know, one of the things that I hate about these stories, we have such little, little uh, information about Elijah's reaction. I always wonder whenever God comes to him and says, all right, it's time for you to go back to Ahab. I wonder if Elijah was like, all right, here we go. I'm ready to throw down. Or if Elijah was like, oh man, I knew this day was coming. I don't know which one it is. I don't know if he's excited about this or if, he is, uh, if he's not looking forward at all. But what we do know is that he goes back. He does exactly what he's told. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 18. And we're going to see what happens when we decide to go to war with our idols. We're going to see what happens when we decide enough is enough, no more. So this is 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. And here's what's going to happen this morning, because we've got to cover almost this entire chapter. And I'll be honest, this could have been two messages and a little bit shorter, uh, or it could have just been one message and a little bit longer. Y'all got the longer one today, so hang with me. Uh, but it's, I, I think it all kind of needs to hold together here. So 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? It's the first time we've seen him since Elijah came up and declared this, uh, this drought. Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you uh, have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. This is Elijah saying, All right, 
I'm back. We're going to do this. Go get these people. Uh, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So what, what he says is, hey, I didn't do this. You did this. Let's get these people together. I have got, uh, I, I've got something that needs to happen here because, uh, as I said, no more. We're not doing this anymore. And this sets up the rest of the chapter. chapter. It sets up everything else that's going to happen. This great showdown that we know so well, Elijah versus the prophets of Baal, 850 verses 1. Uh, and I think it's interesting and it's revealing that these opening words that Ahab gives us here, he says, he sees Elijah come up and he says, is it you, the troubler of Israel? That word troubler there is the same word that's used to describe kind of like a pestilence or a, a, a large scale uh, pain in the rear, basically, is what it's used to describe. Uh, Ahab's assessment is that if Elijah had just kept his nose out of their business, if Elijah had never shown up on the scene, then this nasty drought that's wrecking Ahab's kingdom and giving his kingdom a bad name would never have happened. And I want you to see something right off the bat. This is how sin always works. This is how sin always works. On a national scale, on a church-wide scale, or on a personal scale, it's always the same. When Elijah brought the prophecy of the drought, it was in response to the idol worship of Israel. This is clear in the text. It's obvious that this is what has happened. He comes and says it's not going to rain, and he says it's not going to rain. Why? Because of the widespread idol worship that has gone on all over Israel. So this is uh, kind of a warning slash punishment that, that shows up there. We know that that's why it happens. The idols that, that, that Ahab and Jezebel had set up all over Israel had, uh, had kind of provoked this response. Yet in Ahab's eyes, in Ahab's view of things, the problem isn't the idol worship, but the one calling them out for it. Elijah is the boat rocker here. Elijah is the one causing the trouble. They were just fine on their own until he shows up on the scene. The status quo served the king and his gods just fine. Didn't need anybody to show up and disrupt the status quo. Listen, repentance, which is what Elijah is calling for here, repentance will never happen so long as you think someone else is the troubler of your heart. And this is exactly the problem. Ahab's response is not, oh man, I messed up. I shouldn't have set up all of these temples to worship Baal. What he says is, you're the one that caused all the problems because you're the one that sent the drought. What he should be saying is, oh man, I messed up. I caused the drought because I set up all the idols. But sin never takes that step. It always says, no, 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 somebody else is at fault, even whenever you're called out for your sin. You will never see God work until you come to a place where you can acknowledge that the person pointing to your sin is not your troubler. You are your own troubler with the idols that you create. Not only is the person who points out your sin not the troubler of your heart, the person who points out your sin is actually God's mercy in your life. Now, we don't often see it that way because often what comes with that pointing out is uh, a lot of condemnation, a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment, a lot of denial and deflection. But that is not what we should do. 
Our first move in that instance is almost always to do that, to deflect and to, uh, to, to, to deny, to be angry. It's almost always to fight back and to lash out. It's almost never to just come out and say, you know what, I hear the accusation, and you're right, I need to repent. Our first response should not be, you caused this problem. The first response when somebody calls us out for our sin should be, is this true? Is what you said about me true? Friends, the one you perceive as your troubler may just be God's grace in your life. So be careful what you say in response to that. Elijah leaves little doubt. He says, don't blame me. You've done this to yourself. But now it's time to move on. I'll see you on the mountain. And that's where we keep on going. The stage is now set. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, this is, see that's capital L-O-R-D. If Yahweh is God, if, if Israel's God is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. People looked down at the ground and kind of kicked rocks and were like, eh, this is awkward. That's basically their response. But this is it right here. This is the money quote. If you're looking for like, what do I want to pull out of this? What do I, want to, what, what do I need to kind of write on my heart? It's this right here. This is the, 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 the money quote for sure. It forms the kind of front end that sets the stage for the battle. And it's critical to our understanding of what is happening here. And it's critical to our understanding in our own hearts. Elijah's had enough. He says it's time to make a choice. I'm tired of watching you hedge your bets. I'm tired of watching you try to figure this thing out. I'm tired of, of, of watching you bring this one in and cover your bases over here and, and do this one over here and do that one over here and say, you know what, I'll worship Yahweh, but I'll also worship this God and then I'll also do this one right here and I'll just make sure I got it all covered. And Elijah says, I'm tired of that. No more of that. Make your choice. Pick one. And they all kind of look down and they're like, eh, maybe he's talking to me, I don't know. It's always awkward when people call out your idols. Always. Always awkward. And just so we're clear here, Elijah's rebuke was built on the observation that Israel was trying to have it both ways. Not that Israel was fully committed to Baal, they weren't. Not that Israel was fully committed to these other gods. They never were. They never got rid of Yahweh. They kept Yahweh in their back pocket in case they needed him. I mean, after all, they had the stories and they had the feast and they had all this tradition that went with it. They always kept that in their back pocket. They're just covering their bases. So his observation is that they want to have it all. And he says that's not going to work. They just wanted a little bit more. They just wanted to make sure it was all going to be okay. And I wonder how many of us, our own idols and our own gods that we have, are just-in-case idols. They're those just-in-case kind of idols. The ones that we keep with us and we keep close to us. You know, we love God. I mean, after all, you guys are here on a Sunday morning. You all are here at church. You sang those songs, man. It was great singing all that. I could hear y'all singing. It was wonderful. I bet all y'all were singing. Y'all haven't rejected God. You haven't walked away from God, right? 
you just keep the others in your back pocket, just in case. Just in case you need something else. And I just wonder if that's not where most of us are. But as Christians, we don't get our just-in-case gods. We don't get to have those. And I'll be honest, this is where I think I probably live a lot. As I examine my own heart thinking through this, I think this is probably where I'm at uh, a lot. I don't like to think of myself as limping between two gods, but I can receive Elijah's criticism here. I can receive his rebuke. I don't like to think of myself that way, but that's probably where I'm at, kind of limping back and forth with my just-in-case style. Just in case God doesn't show up, what am I going to do? I wonder how many of y'all approach life that way. That's how I approach life. I'll just totally honest. That's how I approach a lot of it. If God doesn't show up, what am I going to do? What's my backup plan? If God doesn't show up and do what I think he's going to do, what's my backup plan? Where do I run at that point? What do I go to at that point? What am I, I going to fall back on at that point if God doesn't show up? It's a question that I ask quietly. Certainly wouldn't ask it in front of you guys. I'm your pastor. I can't do that, right? Subtly, almost subconsciously. But I know I ask it. I wouldn't want to walk away from God, but what if he walks away from me? What's my backup plan? Elijah rightfully calls that out for what it is, limping, limping between two gods. Y'all know Isaiah 40, 31, right? Y'all know that verse? But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. It's on your coffee mugs. And we love to imagine ourselves as eagles flying through the sky and as this runner who never gets tired. But the reality is most of us are limping around. We're not running anywhere. We like to think of ourselves that way, but we're not running. We're, 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 it's not a matter of running in endurance so that we don't get tired. It's just a matter of limping and whether we can make it across the street. Like, we're limping back and forth between our gods. And Elijah calls us out for our half-hearted approach for what it is. And now, he's borrowing. We'll see this here in just a second. He's borrowing from what the prophets of Baal will be doing around their altar here in just a second. Limping around their altar. He says, you look like them, Israel, worshipers of Yahweh. You look like these prophets of Baal, these priests of Baal doing their thing. You look like you're worshiping Baal whenever you're limping back and forth between these two gods. And most of us are limping around, you know, just in case, just in case. And Elijah's message to us is your idols aren't making you strong. They're making you weak. God's called us to run the race. God's called us to soar like eagles. Strength, endurance, perseverance. And we think that if we just got a little backup plan, if we just got a little backup God, if we just got a, uh, you know, just a, a little bit of a fallback plan, that makes us stronger. But it doesn't make you stronger. It makes you weaker. It makes you lesser. It makes you limp. You just can't see it. And our desire to make ourselves stronger by covering our bases, we're actually making ourselves weaker. I need to keep going. I can't keep chasing these points because these are not like the main points. I can't keep doing that. We're never going to get done here. But these are important for us. So 1 Kings 18, 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. 
So let two bulls be given to us. So he's basically setting the terms for what's about to happen on Mount Carmel. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put, and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord, of Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Good idea. Let's do this. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So the rules of engagement are laid out. The, 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 the terms are put forward, and they say, bet. Let's go. Let's see what happens here. Two altars, two bulls. Let's see who answers. Simple enough. It's not complicated here at all. But here's the thing. The prophets of Baal think they've got the deck stacked for them because this is their home turf. This is their home turf. They're at their altars that have been set up for them. This is not the temple. This is not in Jerusalem. This is the temple that's been set up on top of the mountain specifically for Baal. And not only that, the the terms that have been chosen by Elijah is to set fire to the wood. But here's the thing, the, the, this particular Baal, there's all kinds of different Baals. This particular Baal that they are worshiping happens to be the god of the weather, specifically the god of the storms. And so these prophets are thinking, oh, this is cake. We got it on our home turf, on our own terms. We're playing our game. We can do this. We know this is going to work. I'm not sure what Elijah was thinking, but we've got the deck stacked in our favor. No, this is the whole reason that Elijah specifically uh, uh, prophesied that whether it's Elijah that brought the prophecy forward or God who told Elijah to say this, we're not sure. But where does he draw the battle lines initially in this first meeting with Ahab? It's over the rain, right? So this God of the weather, he's already shut him up for three years. He's already shut him up for over three years, about three and a half years at this point. He's already demonstrated his power and his sovereignty over this Baal. And then Elijah says, we got one more. We're going to make it as clear as day. It's not just the weather. Obviously, what comes with that in the storm is the lightning. This is probably not the best battle for Elijah to pick if the Baals were real. But he knows they're not. Everything is set up in Baal's favor. And then Elijah says, you go first. Let's see what happens. So verse 26. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from the morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. And there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar. There it is, limping. And they limped around the altar that they they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. This is great saying, cry aloud, for he is, he is a God. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or, uh, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. So this is just at the normal offering time. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Three times he says that. No voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. This part of the story is equal parts hilarious and equal parts terribly sad. 
I mean, you can see this scene pretty clearly. The drama, the chanting, the limping around, the cutting, the yelling, the screaming, the blood, the drama on one side and the empty silence on the other side. The contrast is stark. It says they raved on the the volume of 850 of these prophets cutting themselves and screaming and the blood that was everywhere of their own blood, not just the bull that was on the altar, the yelling and the shouting and the chanting, all of these things that were going on, all this loud, just kind of cacophony of sound met by silence. It's a stark contrast. Elijah has a lot of options at this point. He chooses mockery. I'm a fan of that. He says maybe he's daydreaming or taking a nap. Maybe he went for a walk or he took a drive. Maybe he just needed to go potty. But your God didn't hear anything you just said. He's done nothing. I hate it when that happens, guys. Just picked a bad day, I guess. But in all the drama, don't miss out, don't miss what is happening here. Don't miss what is going on. This is what every false god will demand of you. This is what every false god, this is true of every religion, except for those in Christ, Christianity. This is true of every false god that we create in our own heart. Don't misunderstand. This is not some, some, some backward people thousands of years ago. We've, maybe we've gotten a little better about hiding our false gods. Maybe. Maybe we're just blind and we don't actually see how obvious they are. But the message is basically the same from every false god that has ever existed and every false religion that has ever, ever existed. The message is this. Dance for me. Get to work. Do something. Impress me. Show me how great you are. Show me how, how, how much you want. Sh- show me all the things that you can do to impress me. Dance for me. Get to work. Do something. The message is basically the same. Do something for me. And when you do that thing, then I might or I might not respond. And so we do it. All of us. On some measure, all of us. It looks different for every one of us. It's the same thing I could have said the last couple of weeks. I don't want to lay out what it might look like for you because it's different for every single one of us. You've got to be able to diagnose this sin in your own heart. But it's the same for all of us. There's a, there, let, me, let me just throw out some questions you can ask to maybe draw this out of your heart. Now, just mind you, this is a heart check. So I'm not saying that every answer to this question automatically says that's your idol, but... You let the Holy Spirit convict you. So ask these questions. Where do you most feel like you are performing in your life? Like you're playing a role. Where you're tempted to do things just because I'm supposed to. Now don't get me wrong. There's a place for duty in the Christian life. I'm not, I'm not knocking that. This is just a diagnostic question, right? Where do you most feel like you have to do something? Ask yourself, what, who do I need approval from? And what links am I willing to go to get it? Ask yourself, why am I so tired all the time? 
The answer to that may be, I got, I got kids and I'm not sleeping. That may be the answer, right? That is totally a legit answer. But it may be because you are running around, running yourself ragged, trying to impress somebody or something. And really what it is, is not a person or not a friend or not anyone else. It's a false God in your heart of approval. Could be any of those things. Ask yourself, what gets you excited? What do you tell other people about? What gets, you, what gets you vocal? What gets you riled up? And then say, why is that what excites me? Just ask yourself, why am I so busy and who am I dancing for? Who am I working for? And the thing is, the answer to most of these questions probably isn't terrible. They're all probably pretty good things. Because we're all pretty good, respectable people, right? At least that's what we like to tell ourselves. And certainly what we put forward for other people to see, that would be the case. And so maybe it's not obvious, and you've got to do some real heart work, and you've got to ask the question, who am I trying to impress here? What is the unhealthy craving that I have that I'm trying to satisfy by doing this thing? For most of you, it will be subtle. It may even be church-related, family-related. But all of our false gods demand the same thing. And we've got to get past the idea that a good person is a busy person and that a good Christian is a busy Christian because those aren't necessarily the same thing. But this is how every single world religion works. And it's why you can't be misled by the idea that all religions are basically the same because they are not. Christianity is fundamentally different. God doesn't ask us to perform for our dinner. He doesn't ask us to work for our salvation. He saves us, and then he says, now go do as I have asked. He gives us the gift, and then he sends us out. He doesn't say, get to work, and then maybe I'll bestow it upon you if you do it well enough. It's not how it works. Let's keep going. Verse 30. So then Elijah said to all the people, so... Obviously, your God's not listening. He's going for a drive. He said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, great, uh, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in, in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So Elijah now is ready to take his turn. And he's not happy with just winning the bet. He's got to win the bet convincingly. He's going to show just how stark the difference is between Baal and between Yahweh. Baal was on his, his, his home court with all the rules of engagement in his favor. The deck was stacked for Baal. And Elijah orders that it be taken to the next level. Soak the wood. Fill the, the altar with water again and again and again. He stacks the deck against Yahweh where there should be no way that Yahweh could pull this off. He does this just to show that there is no doubt. 
It's also how God likes to work. And we know this one well, don't we? He doesn't just like to show off his power. He tends to do it when working with a max deficit, when odds are deeply against him, when his back is against the wall, when our vulnerabilities are, are, are at their max and, and, and our weakest points are stretched to the limit. This is when God likes to work, much to our chagrin. We would much prefer God work from our strengths we would much prefer God show up whenever we, 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 we want him to so that we can avoid the deficit, the suffering, all the, the pain that goes with that, all the difficulty that goes with that. But that's where God likes to do his most glorious work. He chooses the poor, the outcast, the weak, the forgotten. He doesn't choose the wise, the powerful, and the wealthy. He works out of the places you least expect to see him succeed. Many of you know that, but it's good to be reminded of that now. Because there will be a day where you will be in max deficit. You will be in that place where you will feel like you are the wet wood asking God, where are you and why are you doing this to me? Why am I in this place right now? In this, in, in this place where it seems like you have chosen not to work and it seems like there's no way that you can work. Why is life so darn hard? This is part of it. It's not the only reason, but it's part of it. You're going to remember that these are the places God likes to do His most amazing work. We need need look no further than Easter Sunday for this one. Go back to the cross. Go back to the tomb. God says, I'm not just going to send Jesus to teach my creation than to teach humans. He says, I'm not just going to send Jesus to rule as king over my subjects, but I'm going to send him to redeem it. And I'm not just going to send him to redeem it through declaration, but through death. And not just death, but death on a cross. And not just death on a cross, but resurrection. He's stacking the deck against himself. And not just, not, not just any kind of death or death on a cross, but, but, but death on a cross with a spear in his side where there is no doubt. And then laid in a tomb with a stone rolled over it and Roman soldiers told to make it as secure as you can. Max deficit. He could have done it so much easier than that. He could have done it in different ways, but this was the design. To show that there is no one else but our God that could do it. None of it matters. Because none of it can stop God. Easter Sunday is the, 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 the greatest example of this. Fire on an altar is nothing. We're talking about bringing a man back from the dead, secured by a tomb. And then here with Elijah in verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, again, this just means at the appointed time, the regular time, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. No doubt. Took up all the water. 
consumed the offering, even took the dust off of the altar, turned the stones to lava. Elijah's life was built for this moment. Elijah's life was built for this moment. He was named for this moment. His name is Elijah, which means Yahweh is my God. And then here they chant, the Lord, he is God. It's basically the same thing. It's kind of smushed together in the name Elijah, but they're, they're, they're just about chanting his name there. Yahweh is my God, and then they say, the Lord, he is God. And so it is for us. Elijah's entire life was pointing to that moment, the celebration of who God is, the Lord. Our name may not echo quite as directly as Elijah's. It may not be as, 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 as clear and as evident, but make no mistake, as God's people, we are to be about one thing, the same thing that Elijah was about, bringing forth the renown and the fame of Jesus. Does your life point to Jesus for all to see? Elijah's life was building to this moment. We'll see next week that there was a little bit more to his life than I think he expected and more than he bargained for. But it built to this moment to proclaim, here is my God and I have complete faith that he will show up. And because he was faithful to the word that God had given him, he was able to see this moment happen. How about you? How about you? Will you ever see that moment happen in the lives of those around you? Will you ever hear, hear them say, your God is God because I've seen what he's done in your life? Listen to me. So long as you limp back and forth between two different gods, you're probably never going to see this moment. So long as you hedge your bets and you keep a God in your back pocket to cover your bases, you're probably not going to see this moment. This is, Elijah never would have saw this moment if he had said, you know what, God, maybe they're not, they're not so far off. We still love you, but we're going to keep these bales in our back pocket. Elijah never would have seen the moment. The only way he saw this moment is he had complete and total faith that God would show up. So long as you limp and you keep your backup plan, there's no reason to think that God will show up in this way. And I don't want to make any false promises. I don't, I don't want to throw anything out there so that you misunderstand me, that, that, that if you just live uh, you know, a good enough life and you just trust God enough and you just do this enough, then every person you know is going to come to Jesus and, and be like, oh man, you're amazing because you're amazing. God's, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm trying to put out there. That's not how it works either. But I will say this. God is calling on you to use your life uh, to, to, to use your life, your experience, your education, your job, everything that you've got in your life, your family, your church, your relationships, he is calling on you to use all of that to leverage his name and his glory in a way that you, the only way you will ever, to be, ever be able to see his name be made great is whenever you say, it's all yours, God. It's all yours, God.
this story keeps going, and there's a lot that I could talk about here. Maybe I'll pick up on some of this next week, but it keeps going. It gives us just a, a couple of other notes that are worth looking at here as we finish, and I want to tie some of these things together. In verse 39, Elijah orders that the, the, the prophets who have just taken part on uh, just taking part in this, this whole thing, all the prophets that had, had witnessed all this, uh, Elijah says, round them up, kill them all. Now, that's not our task today. That's not what we are called to do today. But let that, let that give you a picture of how serious this is. God does not play around with our idols. And he does not tolerate our hedging back and forth. He is about his worship, and he will have no other gods before him. And we get to this final paragraph of chapter 18, verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is, for there is a sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount, Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up, and he looked, and he said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. There's a whole sermon in there somewhere. Go up there seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the, from the sea. And Elijah knew right then what was about to happen. He says, Go up and say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. Ahab, you better start running because it's about to get very muddy. About to have a flash flood around here because the rain that you've not seen for three and a half years because your God was too weak to bring it about. My God has brought it and it's about to be an absolute downpour. He's brought fire and now he will bring the rain. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the text preaches itself. I don't need to do a whole lot with this. The text preaches itself. If Baal is God, follow him. But if it's Yahweh, if the Lord is God, then follow him. Don't hedge. Don't have your backups. Follow him. John Calvin once said that our hearts are idol factories. That we produce them one right after another. Just like the gods of Israel, one right after another. They seem primitive in their idol worship, but I'm telling you, we're just like them. We've convinced ourselves that we're smarter, which maybe that's just one of our idols. That we, that, 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 that we, we, we don't do it the way that they do it, and maybe we don't, but man, it's the same kind of thing. We're trusting in something else. We all have things we put our trust in, things that we're counting on to deliver us from the bad days and the hard times. We are an idol factory. And as sensational as this story is, as ready for a movie script as this sounds, as far removed as it is on some mountain in Israel thousands of years ago, it is honestly the, the picture of the normal Christian life. A life marked by repentance. So hear me whenever I say this. This is like a one-time event that we see happen right here for Elijah in this place. For us, 
This is what the Christian life looks like every day. Every hour of every day. This is the normal Christian life. A life marked by repentance. Exactly what Martin Luther said. A life where every day we wake up and we tell ourselves the same thing Elijah did at the very beginning here. If Baal is God, then follow him. But if God is God, then follow him. All of our lives is an ongoing battle of these two kingdoms. In our world at large, in our nation, and in our own hearts. The writer in Psalm 34 says it this way, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer for want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Taste and see. If God is God, follow him. If your gods that you cry out to answer back, follow them. But they're not gonna, because they're not there. And then Peter says, if you've tasted it, live like it. 1 Peter chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The idea is the same. Taste and see. Taste and see. No, no, it's not perform and then you can come have a drink. The invitation is to come and to, deep, and to drink deeply from his mercy and his goodness. And then once you have tasted the sweetness of that mercy, then you do as Peter says. You go and you live likewise. If your gods can satisfy you and can atone for you, then by all means, feast away. The scripture is clear. They can't because they aren't real. They're false gods that we put our hopes in. What are your false gods? What are the things that you're putting your hope in? What are the things that you're hanging your hat on? What are the things that you say, this is what I want you to know about me. This is what I want you to see about me. This is what I put my trust in and my faith in. They're going to keep asking for more. And the silence that they give back is deafening. But God says, come drink deeply. Taste and see. He, he doesn't say, this is so critical here, hear me. He does, not, he, he does not say that if you work hard enough, you might get a little taste. The invitation is to come and try him out. Come drink of the, the grace of God, and then when you have tasted it, this is what will follow. And the question every day, the one you've got to reckon with every day, every time that you're confronted with a sin, every time that you have temptation in front of you is, will I taste and see if God is good, or will I partake in this over here, and will I, will I, will I do the work and try to get something good out of this other thing? Drink deeply. And if they can't satisfy you, 
then follow the only one that can. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning as we study this, we, 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 we want to be Elijah. We want to identify as Elijah. We want to feel the same thing. We want to be able to, to, to call down fire and to trust you in all of that. Father, we want that to be true, but we also confess that, that we look a lot more like Israel, limping back and forth, pretending that we worship you all the while, turning and worshiping these other gods. Father, draw us to you. May our life be marked by a repentance where we repeatedly say that you are God and we follow you. Father, show us what that looks like now, this afternoon, tomorrow morning, this week, this season. Show us what it looks like to repent, to turn from all of our false gods and to follow you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.